Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Welcome back to the Missing Maura Murray podcast. I am Tim, here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. It's a, it's a little chilly outside, um, but it is certainly warm in here, in here in the Crawl Space Studios. Chris King joined us. Yeah, he's our guest on this episode. Chris King is a ball of energy, Lance, and uh, he gives us a lot of information, talks a lot about the Leco Kenny slash Bruce McKay slash Greg Floyd triangle of fate, as I call it in the uh, in the interview. The perfect storm of violence of uh, the, the going-ons up in, uh, up in that area of New Hampshire, um, which is an area that Chris has spent some time and focused a lot on the uh, Leco Kenny case uh, with the family and everything. If you're unfamiliar with this case, we did cover it in episode 41 of this very podcast called Showdown in Franconia, where we talk all about that case. Just to zoom out a little bit, it is this moment where Lico Kenny sped off from a police officer, Bruce McKay, ended up being in altercation. Bruce McKay backs Lico Kenny into this yard. Lico Kenny is pepper sprayed violently in the face. And then he reaches under his car seat, pulls out a gun, and shoots Officer Bruce McKay dead. Lico proceeds to run over him, and then it gets really crazy. To say that, to say that, uh, you know, violence ensued or that the situation escalates is uh, an understatement. And for anyone who doesn't know, uh, it's episode forty-one that we that is showdown in Franconia, and uh, there's a uh, Boston Magazine article that's called Collision Course. Yeah, fantastic article. Which is a fantastic, yeah, fantastic article. It it literally reads like a like a fictional western, like a shootout. Um, right, because after Lico Kenny shoots Bruce McKay and runs him over, he is then shot by a man who is. Well, it it gets into a whole thing. And Chris King has been a huge Lico Kenny supporter. This happened. He he references um, that it's been you know I think he says ten years or so in the making. Um, it's it's funny that we haven't or it's strange that we haven't got him on the show before. So, but you know all things kind of the timing is appropriate. Even when you don't realize it, it's appropriate. Uh, right, yeah, it work, usually works out for one reason or another. We actually had reached out to him uh, when we produced that episode, uh, Showdown in Franconia, and hadn't heard from him. But after we were talking about McKay with Erin from episode 68, she said, hey, have you guys talked to Chris King? Or we said, no, we've been wanting to. And so she hooked us up with him, and so we, uh, we're bringing you this interview now. And he joins us with his dog, Pepper, and a bowl of oatmeal. 
<laughs> that's so, right. So uh, Chris Chris King works a lot, needs a lot of uh, substance to sustain that energy. So I, I we just uh, had to watch him eat a bowl of oatmeal and then <laughs> and, and while we interviewed him. He's he's got a lot of energy. He talks about a lot of cases. He uh bounces around a little bit. He's a very controversial guy, I would say, with some of his opinions. But from his blog, he is a self described just a guy with a camera, a law degree, AAG experience, journalism experience, trial experience, managerial mortgage, title insurance and property experience, and an open mind. Just a guy. <laughs> just a guy uh you should really check out his videos um his courtroom videos uh his blog is christopher-king.blogspot.com if you were just to read it like the transcripts of what he does in the courtroom you think that it was a script for like law and order it's yeah. uh he he goes in there full force he doesn't he doesn't take many prisoners when he's there and you really he doesn't suffer people who violate civil rights he does not he does not tolerate that. You got that right. And so there isn't a ton of direct Mora Murray chatter in this episode. I would say we we talk about the Mora Murray case in a roundabout way because we talk about this incident and we talk about how potentially Bruce McKay and Greg Floyd and even Lico Kenny had some connection or potential connection to the Mora Murray case. Like a sixth degree of separation. Yeah. Um, we find out that Liko had searched for Mora on his uh, four-wheeler. And it goes back to that thing that we keep mentioning where even with these stories that happen in New Hampshire, Greg Floyd happens to be the person who lived down Hummingbird Lane, which was right around the area that Rick Forcier claims that he saw somebody who matched Mora's description running. So you can't... It's just this amazement that I consistently have, and I don't think it'll ever go away, you can't simply have one person giving an, an, a witness account without it leading to someone like Greg Floyd, which then leads to Bruce McKay and Lico Kenny and this crazy, crazy thing that happened. And then you look into Bruce McKay and, you know, introduce Aaron Larkin into that whole realm, that whole world of Bruce McKay. And it just starts all of these like vicious, like like you said, this triangle of, of fate and this perfect storm of violence. It, it's like Mora just drove right up in the middle of it all. Okay, so let's bring you this interview with Chris King. Thank you very much for listening. Please follow us on Twitter at Mora Murray Doc. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you very much. Welcome to the Missing Mora Murray podcast, Christopher King. Thank you very much for joining us here today. Very excited to talk to you. We've uh, we've seen your work, your uh, your blogs about the state of New Hampshire for uh, for a while now, like ye- years. We've seen it, uh, so it's really nice to finally be able to talk to you. Indeed, it is. It's been about ten years in the making, guys. You know, I mean, the five eleven was oh seven, so it's been what you know ten and a half years now. That's incredible. And Tim said we've uh, seen your work. It's more like you experienced the work of Chris King. It is. And, you know, the thing is, uh, in our society right now, we're such a fragmented society, and everything comes in sound bites and, and short segments. But the kind of work I do is in-depth work. 
And, you know, it's, it's not for the dilettante. It's not it's for the diligent, not for the dilettantes. And you have to really wade into it. You can't just half step it. You've got to really embrace it and get into it and follow it through. As I've been doing with a number of cases now for, you know, eight or ten years now, I've been investigating certain cases, two of them out of New England, which I'm sure we'll get to in a moment. So you did a lot of work on the Lico Kenny, Bruce McKay, Greg Floyd uh, triangle of fate, as uh, as we call it. Um, and we and we did an episode on on that instance way back. I think it was episode forty one. Tell us a little bit about what happened that day, and tell us a little bit about how you feel about it and everything. I say this as a former law enforcement attorney. My first job out of law school was as assistant attorney general. And Bruce McKay needed to get shot. I'm sorry to say that, but it's accurate. There was no other way to stop that man. He was a dangerous instrumentality that had been proved countless times. And it's unfortunate that that had to happen, but it had to happen because there was no stopping him. The government was not going to stop him. They knew he was a dangerous instrumentality. They had complaints from qualified personnel. They didn't stop him. He was given free reign to terrorize the entire community. And that's what he did, uh, by and large. So on that particular day, 5-11, Bruce McKay, well, it's hard to go into that day without discussing the backdrop because the backdrop happened uh I want to say in 03, when Lico Kenny was uh, at Fox Hill Park, and he was chilling out watching, or he was not watching, but the Super Bowl game was on that day, and he's not into that kind of stuff, so he was chilling out in his car, he wasn't getting high, he was just sitting there. I think the uh, the reporter indicated there might have been a bowl in the, in the trunk or something, but he was just sitting there in a legal park at a legal time when he was... Uh, accosted by Bruce McKay, who demanded to see his license registration, all that stuff. So Lico, he gave him a hard time for a minute, but he ended up giving him the license and registration, okay? He gave him the license. I did my research on it. The license was valid. So, and you don't have to have insurance in New Hampshire, so the car might have been insured. I don't know. I haven't talked to his parents about that. It doesn't matter. What matters is that the park was open, and Lico was there. So after McKay gives, uh, takes the license, he doesn't give it back. All you had to do is run it and say, okay, be on your way or not be on your way because Lico was lawfully assembled in that park. So, and I've been to Fox Hill Park. I know everybody around there. All right. So the deal is Lico doesn't trust him because he's heard things through the grapevine about this officer. Before we go further with that, like what kind of things? And we're talking about Bruce McKay, who was a police officer um, yes. at, at this time, and uh, Lico Kenny, who was a civilian. And yes. so Bruce McKay had, had a reputation around town. Yes, he did. So what, what was that reputation? Well, uh, I, I never met Lico. I met all of his friends. I would have met Lico on a prior occasion, but I, I ended up missing him. But it's a long story on that, too. We're not getting into that right now. But um, his friends, all everybody knew that Bruce McKay was dangerous, and he, he harassed people. I, I talked to, you know, Brian Jessamine was a good friend of Lico's, and he'd ride his dual sport dirt bike around, and McKay would give him a hard time about that. And so there was, I don't, Obviously, I don't know exactly what Lico knew, but there was a lot known that we'll get into. Um, but they just knew that he was a bully. And so Lico begins to ask for backup. And that's all on the video that's captured, but was not released until after 2007 because that's how Kelly Ayotte spun it. So this video from 03 shows Lico asking for backup. And he clearly says to first he says, hey, you can't keep me here without a good reason. And that's basic, you know, Fourth, Fifth Amendment law, you know, and first because he can tell them that. But Bruce doesn't let him go, and he keeps him there. And um, you should know that around this time period, there were two or three other cases from Fox Hill Park 
where at least one of them, the kids were actually getting high in the car. But the cases were th dismissed because their egress was blocked without probable cause. And you can't do that. You know, you, you've apprehended someone, you, you know, you, you've seized them without probable cause. So if you block the exit to Fox Hill Park in a police cruiser and you're not letting somebody out and then you inspect them and you see, oh, you were getting high, you have violated constitutional principles. But and remember, Lico wasn't even getting high. So Lico clearly says, hey, I like a, uh, it's a statey coming here. And Bruce says, well, I don't know. This is all on a highlight reel that I made. It's on YouTube. Well, I don't know. No, he knew exactly who was coming. Who was coming was his jackbooted friends, Cox and Ball, from other municipalities, or jurisdictions. They're coming in there. And they basically take Lico behind his squad car and beat the shit out of him. And they were his, and, they were McKay's friends? Yes. They, they, they weren't on the same force. Uh, they don't believe they're Franconia, no. Uh, one was uh, Sugar Hill. I forget where they were from. But Cox and Ball. How about that? This is uh, from the dashboard camera. This is from the police uh, cruiser's dashboard camera. And so this isn't something that you're talking about based on affidavits or, or testimony. This is something that you can, I've watched it, you know, Tim's watched it. You can see yeah. and you can hear it pretty clearly that Lico is, is uh, first of all, asking several times what he did wrong, why he was even being... Um, why he was even being spoken to and not just left alone. And he references the Super Bowl and he says that I think was he on his way back from like his mother's place or something. Uh, uh, yeah, he's, he was waiting to meet a friend, I think, uh, there. Or yeah. He was going to meet some friends or something. Yeah. Yeah. And then it and but probably like, uh, you know, very soon in the conversation between the two of them, you start to wonder why this officer, even if you don't know Lico, Kenny and Bruce McKay, even if you don't know their relationship or the reputations of either of them. You start to wonder why this officer isn't just saying, isn't just letting this this guy go. I mean, he Lico was not acting up at at any time before before it escalated or escalation of of events. At that point, did Lico know McKay, or he just kind of knew of him based on? He knew of him. I don't know if he knew him personally, but he knew of him. He knew of the legend, okay. the reputation. I don't want to use the word legend because that that that's a positive connotation or denotation. So. He's not a positive man, so I want to say his reputation. He knew of it, yes. And admittedly, you know, Lico gave him a little bit of mouth at, at first. Fine, you know, whatever. That you don't get beat up over that. Well, I mean, black folks do, <laughs> but you know, but you know, traditionally, you know, uh, and some white folks do. Hippies too. It's like driving while hippie. You know what I mean? And and it's almost as dangerous as driving while black. Okay, so that event escalated, and then what happened? Uh, what? Ha how did it? How was that situation left? They end up charging Lico with assault against an officer, all, you know, this type of thing. McKay basically sat on him, you know, sat on his head. He has balls on his face. And Lico said that in the, in the back of the cruiser, right? And, um, yeah, McKay had a certain seamy kind of sexual undertone to a lot of things he did. But uh, we'll get there later, I'm sure. So they charge Lico. Lico doesn't want to take the plea. And he tells his lawyer, no, I'm fighting this. I didn't do anything wrong. But uh, with all that time hanging over his head, you know, assault against an officer, all this stuff, they, he ends up taking a plea. And uh, his lawyer, Boyle, I think his name was, ends up being a judge later. Oh, yeah. Fascinating how that works, isn't it? So uh, Lego ended up, you know, looking the ass in all of this. And McKay took no responsibility, basically. So that was, that's what happened in 2003. So it's already in Lego's head. I know this guy hates me. You know, McKay had run the license plates of the of Tamarack Tennis uh, Camp, 
you know, as if these vans were stolen. Okay, he was a sick man, in my opinion. And I know he was on medication because they refused to give me that medication when I inquired of it um, in the lawsuit for public information. But anyway, so that happened in 03. Then you flash forward to 07, and Lico had an expired registration on the Celica, on the uh, Supra, which I think was Davy's car. I get confused. But in any event, it's a family car. And McKay sees him. On that day, Lico was in good spirits. I, I talked to uh, Nikki Duram, had just seen him. Mickey De- Mickey Duram had just seen him at Agway, and he had loaded her car up. She had a little Prius, and he had loaded it up with whatever stuff she was buying for her house or her farm. And he was on his way to hang out with Caleb and chill out, you know. And they were making plans actually to come out in this direction. You know, I'm in Seattle now. They were making plans to hit the road for a while, and everything was great. And then McKay comes by. Now, interestingly enough, the Floyds were in the store behind Lico a few minutes before all of this went down. Now, small town, small store, anything's possible. I'm just saying it's a fact that they were there. All right. And so uh, Lico starts on his way home, and McCabe comes by, and he sees him, and then he gets pulled over. Lico was afraid because back in 03, the judge had put out an edict, and the edict was very unclear. It said, no further contact with Bruce McKay. So, you know, what does that mean exactly? Especially as to a 23, 24-year-old man, no contact with him. That that could easily be taken to mean, well, okay, if he pulls me over, I get to ask for another cop. Because, and especially in Lico's mind, I got throttled by this guy. Maybe the court's trying to be somewhat sensitive to my concern for a change. Was there any uh, instance where Lico had, um, like, knowingly approached Bruce McKay to antagonize him? Of course not. Okay. There's none of that on the record. Okay, because when you hear that, um, there'll be no further contact with Bruce McKay. I think it just leads one to believe that, you know, they had been antagonizing each other mutually. And that is not the case. There is not one scintilla of evidence in the record that I've seen that Lico Kenny ever approached Bruce McKay about anything. Okay. There so, is in the record evidence that Bruce McKay would drive by the Kenny compound with his lights on deep at night and do things of that nature. Okay. Uh, and, and you know, the aforementioned issue with him, you know, running tags on the police van and, you know, he hated Bodie, you know, all of it, you know, just all of it. Couldn't stand Bodie. He's like, oh, Bodie's got money, you know, and he's, you know, a skier and all of it, man. This McKay guy was just sick, sick business. So in 07, um, Lico gets pulled over with Caleb, and he said, he's like, hey, man, I'm scared. And I've talked to Caleb about this, all right? Caleb can't talk anymore. He's doing his own thing. But I know for a fact that Lico was scared shitless. Those were Caleb's words to me. And he said, I'm going to call Uncle Mike. And Mike is a well-respected businessman in town. He you know, lays out most of the tennis courts around there. And he said, I just want to get to Uncle Mike's house for a witness to whatever McKay's going to do to me. I want it to be in the open. So they start driving down the road, you know, and uh, they don't make it. <laughs> Lico's not speeding, by the way. He's driving the limit, and then McKay swoops past him right past the county line, right before you get to the, the, the town line. And so Lico is now about, uh, I've walked, it's like a, an eighth of a mile from his uncle's house. And he pulls off into the side there. McKay does a bizarre like 10 point turn it was described by connie mckenzie who was watching this from her house and then mckay maneuvers the tahoe 
Liko is sitting there facing the road, 116, and McKay just takes Tahoe and bashes him off from sight, just drives him back about 30 feet with these tire tracks away from public view, gets out of his car, walks up with no warning or directive whatsoever, and just empties a whole can of OC spray on Liko with nothing. You know, and so he is, in that one move, he's violated about six or seven different protocols. I think I counted eight protocols he violated. The pursuit, the using of the Tahoe to bash a car, um, the OC spray without a warning or directive. All of these things are put into place to help avoid escalation because it's known when you hit somebody with OC spray that you're going to get a violent response. It's, it's very possible. And he also, McKay had a duty to Caleb to warn as well. That's all in their own code and in their own police policy manuals. So OC spray is like pepper spray. That's correct. I can't pronounce it. It's pepper. <laughs> okay. His nickname was Officer Pepper, by the way, because he had let loose in a, in a public school building and sickened a number of people and went through the ventilation system. A number of people were, were felled by that and went to the hospital. Yeah, that's Bruce McKay for you. During the dashboard cam of this one, of this uh, particular instance, uh, Lico asks, I don't know if you said it, Lico asks specifically for somebody else there before he drives away. So Bruce McKay pulls him over, uh, yep. gets out. Lico says, I, I want somebody else here. I'm supposed to have somebody else here. Uh, says it numerous times. Um, and uh, and then when um, McKay gets back into the cruiser, that's when there's a, a few beats that pass. And that's when Lico drives away. And like you said, he wasn't speeding. He, you, you can watch the entire, um, I guess you'd call it a chase, but it's pursuit, and they are not speeding. Lico wasn't speeding that time? Lico wasn't speeding when he drove away from uh, Bruce McKay. Really? Okay. No, but no, it, and it didn't is, even look like he was speeding when he pulled him over. Yeah, well, that that for sure, uh, when he originally he pulled him over. Yeah, but but you're saying when he left, too, he wasn't speeding. Maybe maybe I should clarify. It wasn't. Maybe he was going over the speed limit, but it didn't look like a high-speed pursuit. I don't even know that he was even doing that because the neighbor said, you know, he, the neighbor described it as Lico's car was not going fast, you know. And, and so not only that, Lico's aunt had driven by a few minutes ago. And she was speeding. And McKay looked right past her. She said, I was flying. I know that. And she said, I was flying. Because he was looking for Lico. Right. But, but Lico fled at one point. Like, does that give, does that open the door for McKay on any of these? Because Lico, okay. like, no, not fled maybe, but. He left the scene. Yeah, he left. Yeah, the scene. It, it, yeah, and so they try to make a big deal out of that too. By the way, when he fled, like, of course he's got a stick shift car, it's a Supra, it's a moderate amount of horsepower, and he's in the in the dirt that when he pulls out. So like, you know, kicked up some trails and stuff like that. But it's not like he hammered the thing and, and it would fly down the road at red line. It's nothing like that at all. Okay, so um, you know, yes, let's remember where we are. We're not in New York City. We're in a small little town, and the kid has already had a conflict, and he's asked for another officer for backup. He's not trying to hide anything. So why doesn't McKay simply say, all right, motherfucker, you know, I'll call you a backup. I'm going to give you a ticket for this, this, and this. All right? Why not do that? Because Bruce McKay couldn't do it that way. It's the Bruce McKay way or no way. Now we have the point where Lico's been bashed off the road. He's been OC sprayed like that. And in his mind, and possibly in Caleb's mind, they both thought, Lico definitely thought, I'm going to die. This man is going to kill me right now. And I have no recourse. So that's why he got his gun, and he fired those shots immediately, and that was that. Now, he tries to drive away. My, uh, around that point, the OC spray is setting in, though, okay? Now, there was another lie that was uh, propagated by Kelly Ayotte and her minions, which was that Lico ran him over twice. Not true. In the files 
themselves, which I have. And Kelly Ayotte was the uh, attorney general at the time, just uh, in case you are unaware. And in case you're unaware, Chris King is a huge fan of Kelly Ayotte. <laughs> uh, I, wouldn't go that, I wouldn't go that far. I think this is some of them. But I have the rest of the files from the investigation. And uh, unlike the other journalists, I actually looked at the file. Fancy that. And I saw where Greg Floyd distinctly said, the first time he was interviewed, I shot that driver within about four seconds. So there was no talking to Lico and all that stuff, okay? I don't want to get ahead of the narrative right now. But, well, I guess we're... Hi, Pepper. I guess we're at about that level. And your dog's uh, name is Pepper. Oh, my God. Officer Pepper. Yeah. So at that point, Lico fires. He starts to drive away. And according to Greg Floyd Jr., well, he has a different middle name, so it's not the same. He's not Jr. Kind of like McEnroe has a different middle name than his father, so they're, you know junior or senior, but same name, same first name. So he uh, says that he saw the car pull forward and there's a windshield bullet that's unaccounted for in this, in all of this. And it's clearly on my blog. I took a photo, you know, it's, I, I took a screen capture and all that. And you can see where there's a windshield bullet that's not accounted for. I believe that that's Greg Floyd had, had already grabbed the officer's gun and started shooting at that point. I don't think McKay got a shot off. I really don't. So, yeah, you're saying there's a bullet in Lico's windshield? At the base. At the base of the windshield. Okay. And yeah. based on the video, it didn't certainly didn't look like Lico, and it didn't seem like it was McKay um, getting a shot off. didn't look like he had, he had the opportunity to get a shot off, although he did reach for his weapon. So either that was from a different event or that was Greg Floyd oh, Sr.? That was, that was from that event. Okay. okay. So, there were no, so, he, so then at that point... Uh, his son, Floyd Jr., says the car started moving forward, then he stopped, did not hit the officer at that time, backed up and tried to drive away again. That's when Papa Floyd gets involved, this multiple felon gets involved and and starts uh, – by then I think Lico's pretty much clinically blinded. And uh, Floyd comes in there and basically shoots through the window. Okay, now we know – for fact, through the, the passenger window, side window, yes, through Caleb. Okay, he leaped, grabbed Caleb and threw him down. All right, it's, Caleb told me all this, and he said Lico was a hero. He's like he knew he was about to die, and that, my friends, is one of the most poignant things you can even think about. You know, here's Lico, and by the way, you can see Lico reaches out to Floyd in that split second on the video as as, as McKay's about to bash him with a Tahoe. Lico is reaching out of the window to Floyd, saying, you can see his hand go like that. Hey, 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 thanks. Like, I'm, I'm glad you're here. Like, uh, somebody watch this. And Floyd's sitting there, watching McKay the whole time. All right? You see him parked there by the side of the road. So ominous and, and so sketchy. I can't, I can't really believe all this. Almost so, like he was waiting. Uh, I, I firmly believe. I'm not putting McKay, words into your mouth, but. You don't have to. Oh, I, I right. believe that there was a collusion. I really do. Uh, and and it, it's certainly Kelly Ayotte's clearing of Floyd 36 hours after the event. That is pathetic. 36 hours? Yes. Yes. She cleared him. It was, it was less than 48 hours. The whole thing was cleared. You can't investigate a jaywalking ticket in 48 hours. Oh, my God. You know, insane. So the next thing, you know, like I said, the, the window was in the up position. We know that. You can see the glass is shattered in the car. But then Floyd changes his story two or three times. And Kelly Ayotte then goes with the later stories. That, to me, 
she should have been disbarred for that. Now, you know, and that's why. She, yeah. Now, had yeah. Floyd gotten into trouble before this incident, uh, trouble with the law? Multiple felon in Georgia. He sold primos, PCP, marijuana. He stole a Virgin Mary. He had a lot of issues down in Massachusetts as well with his neighbors. Okay, um, disorderly conduct, violent type of behavior, threatening behavior. But nobody would ever take him to task. You know, he had there was a meter reader in New Hampshire when he moved there. Shay Littlefield or something like that, or maybe that's the name from NPR. But the guy's name was Shay or, or Littlefield, one of that. Anyway, the, he threatened that guy. And that guy disappeared. He didn't want to testify against him. Uh, at Profile School, I think it was, they put in a special door because of him. He told someone at Profile School, an innocent person, regarding a parent-teacher conference, he told this person, you better watch your step, lady, because if you're not careful, they're going to send you home in a body bag. Okay? I have all of that. I have the affidavit from Robert Every. He was a local police chief who said that he could envision Greg Floyd appearing at a school and causing a mass shooting or something of that nature. Oh, yeah. So this, this man was a known, a known uh, public miscreant. It's worth noting that I asked for fingerprint analysis. Now, in the investigation, you hear someone, you, you hear, I saw it written to someone that, hey, we're going to want to know how these guns got in the condition they're in and how, you know, what condition, where they were, everything. We're going to want to know all of that, right? So I asked for a fingerprint analysis because Floyd alleged that Lico was reloading his uh, his gun. He said the clip was out and Lico was reloading. Floyd goes home with a live round in his pocket. Okay? Now, y'all, I don't know if you shoot or not. I shoot a little bit, all right? Enough to know that there's only one way you get a live round in your pocket. You clear the chamber. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? The gun had jammed or whatever. I think maybe that's what had happened. So, but Floyd cleared it, and then uh, he takes the live round home. But the bottom line was, Lico was not reloading. Lico was trying to get the hell out of there. You see? And so, uh, in any event, guess what never was produced? Fingerprint analysis. You have a double homicide out there, and you're telling me that you don't have a fingerprint analysis. They don't have a fingerprint analysis because Greg Floyd's fingerprints were all over Lico Kenny's gun and, and the magazine, or the clip, put it in there, all right? It's just the biggest bunch of bullshit I've ever seen. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I agree that um, that settling this case 36 hours or less than 48 hours after the shootings is questionable. Um, but how, like, how should this have been handled? Good question. There should have been a grand jury convened. It would have looked at what Greg Floyd's son said and what Greg Floyd initially said versus what Floyd said later. 
Because once you have Floyd running up to that car like that, and he does not know that Bruce McKay is alive or dead, he does not know, but Lico is trying to leave. The threat to the officer, dead or alive, is over. So if Floyd runs up to that car and starts spraying already, that's not permissible. He's not coming to the aid of another necessarily. That's up to a grand jury to make that determination. And how will they make that determination? Maybe they get to look at some of Floyd's violent past. Who knows? That's, a, that's an evidentiary battle that has to be discussed. You know, But none of that happened. And I'm sitting here. People have tried to discredit me because I'm a suspended attorney. I was suspended because I pissed off the wrong people. I wasn't suspended because I didn't know the fucking law. All right? I know the fucking law very well. Well enough to upset Kelly, I'll tell you that much. I upset her so much that she threw me out of her public events. All right? She didn't want me around at all. You know, I sued her for that, and they managed to cover it up, too. But, yeah, yeah, man, that's what should have happened. They should have convened a grand jury to look at what really happened using the, the contemporaneous testimony uh, of his son and all the evidence, the up window. You never talked to Lico. Floyd claimed, oh, I talked to him and told him to put the gun down. No, you didn't. You just, you just executed this young man. There was the woman who was a criminal justice major, a lecturer. She was married to a cop. She sent in a 13-page complaint about Bruce because he had put a knife to her near her privates. You know, he had her in a squad car uh, uh, seat belted for a DUI that wasn't even valid. And she wrote in about that 13-page complaint saying he has psychological issues and poses, <laughs> poses a threat to society, and they ignored it. So I feel like it would have been just as easy for them to say Greg Floyd with his past, you know, was just happened on this situation and he's a violent individual and, you know, good riddance to a violent cop with psychological issues and good riddance to a violent, uh, you know, criminal. Why didn't they approach it like that? I'm, I'm I find it so strange that there was all of this protection of Greg Floyd. Well, this is the royal hand of hegemony, you know, when you deal with police too often and it's sad, you know, it's a thin blue line kind of thing. But number one, or in no particular order, you know, you've got a cop, all right? And a lot of people are just, just dogma, just, you know, all right, dogma regarding the, the sanctity of the, of, the, of the police. And that's unfortunate because, you know, these bad apples ruin it for the rest of the police, who have the toughest job in the world, by the way. I will go on record as saying that, uh, other than heart surgeons, I guess. But, but under pressure, yeah, anyway. So um, the, the, the deal is, is that Greg Floyd, I believe, is a government informant. And I, I, I say that because I know that later on he had weapons in his possession. He was not supposed to have weapons in his possession. And they didn't prosecute him for that at, at one point before all this happened when they could have. Then later on, they went to the house after he was convicted a year later, after the Lee Kenny shootings, he was convicted a year later of threatening his neighbor, A.J. Boyd Bear, with a gun. Okay, an elderly, an elderly woman. And they went to the house then and they found guns in the house then. And they kind of skirted around it saying they were registered to his wife or whatever. But the bottom line is there were a number of times they could have gone after this man for violations, and they didn't. I ended up going downtown to the Boston FBI office several times. Roy Sharbra was his name, C-H-A-B-R-A. I went to him a number of times. I talked to President Biden. There's a picture online of me talking to Joe Biden when he was vice presidential candidate about this case. And, 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 and he says, oh, I'm going to make sure that, you know, repeat felons and re all this stuff, all that, blah, 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 bullshit, all right? They let this guy slide. And, you know, you have McKay, was a big revenue maker for the city, number one. He wrote more tickets than you could possibly imagine. And then you have uh, 
just the fact that he's a cop. And so they, twice after that, they tried to ramroad this Bruce McKay Highway Initiative past the, the locals. And I was very proactive in that twice, first in the House, then in the Senate. And, it, and we beat it both times. And there's lots of video on, on my uh, website about that uh, that can be seen if you Google um, King Cast plus Cool Cats. That was what I had it tagged it as. And there's about six or eight of us there, you know, state rep GNA. A number of people are just testifying about that. And we shut it down because the people, there was a conciliation force, a task force that was put together in the wake of all this. And they decided that no, no road should be named after Bruce McKay. But yet the legislature thought it was important to try to do that, try to ram it down their throats. And we stood tall and we said no. And so we twice defeated that measure. And that's something that speaks volumes for a cop to be shot allegedly in the line of duty. All right. And then not to have a road named after him. That's impressive. And was it a 19 to zero vote, too? I believe so. Might have been in the house, and it went. To, I can't remember the the particulars at this point. Okay, but, but it was, but it was pretty strongly opposed to naming a naming a road. Okay, yeah, and yeah. it's your opinion. You said you don't have any uh, backup for it, but it's your opinion that Greg Floyd was a an informant for the police. I just look at the actions. Yeah, I look at his background, and I see where he's you know um, certainly a public miscreant. He's dangerous. None of that's disputed. And whenever I see a person like that that has all those kinds of hits in their background and I see no action being taken against them, in my experience, having worked for criminal defense lawyers, knowing confidential, reliable informants, okay, I that's just something I can never prove. And I say that. I can never prove that. But my feeling, my gut feeling is that he was a government informant of some kind. Okay. And here's a fact. He lived on Hummingbird Lane. Yes. In uh, 2004. Yes. And, uh, uh, is that is that Haverhill or is that um, what is that Bath? I forget if that's Haverhill or um, anyway. It's 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 five or six miles away from uh, Moore's accident, and it is right around the spot where Rick Forcier says that he saw somebody who may or may not have matched the description of Mora uh, in some sort of running apparel on the side of the road. Rick Forcier's um, alleged sighting puts her close to where Greg Floyd uh, lived at the time. And knowing everything that we know about Greg Floyd, we've, we've, we've gotten into this quite a bit. It's just another, uh, it's another thing that you look at and you say, oh, where did, where did, you know, Rick Forcier, that's, you know, he's an interesting individual uh, when you look into him. And then you look at on a map and you say, well, his sighting puts her around here. And then once you make the connection that Greg Floyd lives there, you look up Greg Floyd. Oh, here's a complete maniac that, you know, this sighting, there's absolutely nothing in this that, ever puts Mora in a place where you don't have someone who's either, you know, certifiable, uh, a cop that's taken advantage of their power or, a you know, fucking maniac or something, you know, there's, there's everything just puts her in a worse place at the, at the worst time. Uh, what you go, what's your, what's your thoughts? Uh, Cause you're, you're nodding. Like you <laughs> just telling me to oh, yeah. stop talking. I'm done a concurrent full, no dissent, you know, uh, Again, these are things that can't be proved. I heard, and this is all, I'm very clear about conjecture versus fact when I discuss this. I'm very clear that this is conjecture. I heard that they were people that were searching, you know, the Floyd grounds for evidence of some kind. Don't know that to be a fact. What I do know to be a fact is that this man has already told an innocent woman, he's already been convicted of threatening an innocent woman, an elder, and he has told 
an innocent woman at the school that he was going to send her home in a body bag. You know, in common parlance, you know, let's think about this, fellas. In common parlance, when's the last time you ever told that to somebody? That's not named Tim? Yeah. <laughs> Other than your brother right here? Right. <laughs> you know, th- th- this is shit you just don't say to somebody. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's beyond the pale. Is there any uh, evidence supporting uh, a relationship between McKay and Floyd uh, previous to the the Lico Kenny incident? The only thing that I heard was that they were members of the same gun, gun club, which, again, that's nothing that's usually dispositive. I mean, there's only so many gun clubs out there. You shoot, you remember the same gun club. It's so facto, you know. I can't get anything off of that, really. Right. But there's just that certain sixth sense that I have that says that these men were connected. You said that Flo- the Floyds were behind Lico, Kenny, and Caleb in the store, the convenience store, before they hit the road, before he got uh, into the altercation with M- McKay. Um, right. So were you sort of implying, uh, obviously— there's no proof of this, but were you implying maybe that he was following Lico, like he potentially knew something was about to go down? Again, pure conjecture. Yeah. Not just saying, wow, what a coincidence. You know, what a coincidence that this man here. Oh, and the stuff he said about other stuff like, oh, um, I, I, I was in Vietnam. I've shot all these people. I shot him real good. I shoot real good. He's, this is all throughout his history. I shot him real good. First of all, the guy never left Camp Lejeune. I know Vietnam War veterans. I'm helping one of them right now keep his house. Floyd never left Camp Lejeune, I believe. And he, and his discharge was questionable. I don't think he got honorable. Um, yeah, right. So this guy's a little nutty. And he has claimed to have killed people before, right? Yeah, that was my 44th kill or something like that. I mean, so when you have a person that's talking like that, all right, on the day of the, of the killings, then for Kelly Ayotte, again, coming back to her, because the fish rots at the head, coming back to her, letting this man off, even if you had charged him with something and suspended a sentence, even if you had charged him with something and, and, and given him a pass by reason of insanity or something of that mental defect, something. But to hear this man talk about how he's been in Vietnam, no, I did the math right then. He was, you know, uh, he's 50 at the time, I think, and there was no way in hell he could have been in Vietnam. Yeah. <laughs> The guy has my birthday, too. I'm just, oh, my God. Are you kidding me? April 14th. Oh, you guys have the same personality. (laughs) I think I remember hearing, now that you mentioned the government informant thing, I think I remember, do we ever hear that that he said something like he killed he killed for the government or he's worked for the government. Yeah, yeah. didn't he? He said that before, yeah, right? Yeah. Have you I heard think that? Oh, he said something like that. Yeah, yeah, I think it's I think it's in the in the video where he freaks out outside of the courtroom. Okay. Yeah, and it's like it's it's there's like a scuffle or whatever. Um, well, I'm standing there. He 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 put that cane toward me. All right, right. right. I'm uh, sorry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was right there, <laughs> and so he. Uh, and uh, on the footage, luckily I was able to capture some of that footage when it was still online. But I got some of that because there's a couple people between me and him. But And he goes after – I'm not saying he's coming after me directly, but he's definitely moving in my direction with that cane. And he's got a number of people standing around there that he's flailing that cane at. And eventually, you know, he gets into it with uh, Sergeant Bossoyer. Um, yeah, I can never pronounce his name. It's French for son. So <laughs> he, he – uh, comes after him 
and then they, he gets pinned against an elevator. And I had that's that's my picture. I had a cheap disposable camera at the time, and I remember hovering above when they they pinned him against the. You know, and I'm, ah! I'm like, good, take him away. Yeah. Son of a bitch. So what was yeah. that case for then? What? Why was he in court then? Okay, so that this was a year after he had killed Lico, murdered in my opinion. What had happened was he had threatened his neighbor on Hummingbird with a gun. And he yeah. was found, uh, they gave the neighbor a restraining order against him? Yeah, yeah, I, I have that hearing. By the way, I have that hearing. Uh, I sent it to you, a link to, to yeah. you from my one of my, it wasn't my YouTube channel, I didn't have one at the time, but one of the neighbors. So he freaked out. He freaked out because of that? I mean, he wasn't going to jail or anything, right? Well, no, no, no. The, the, the altercation between the neighbor and him it was before the restraining. He got the she got the restraining order because of that altercation. There had been nothing between them. Right. He didn't. She didn't really like him. She kind of avoided him. But there was a time when, like you know, they were, one was coming home and one was the other the other way. And you they, you know, kind of the, it was a tough pass. Yeah. There can only be eight. one car that goes through at a time, so yeah. someone had to back up. It was a standoff between two cars and. <laughs> Right, you know, he... and you you actually live on a road where you have to do this. Oh, uh, right, the uh, one way. Lands. Yeah, yeah. There's a one way little bridge, and I've driven to your house, and you have to stop and back up if there's a car who's come too far. Actually, I have a little play, little spot like that near me too. Yeah, going under the um, bridge. Yeah, and yeah. never in my life have I seen a standoff in those places. No, because right. because we live around relatively sane people. You know, I would hope so. You would hope, but you never know. Yeah. But that's the last. I mean, if you're talking about like, you know, the last person you want to see in that situation is him. <laughs> oh yeah, no? I'm, I'm backing up instantly. If I'm actually fuck that, I I I just, I'd stand my ground for a little bit until for a little bit for a little bit with Greg Floyd. No, no, I wouldn't. That's a lot. <laughs> not not now. Maybe before. Maybe have before having known what a what a what an oddball he is oddball the, oddball the man and, the man told after public menace yeah public menace he told a police officer after murdering somebody careful son i'm quicker than you he That's wasn't right. he wasn't just going to put right. down his gun he wanted the other officer to know that i'm i am putting my gun down by my own choice it's not because you're telling me to it's because i am doing it how how if anything if any way have things changed with law enforcement after the Bruce McKay, Lico Kenny incident, in your opinion, in New Hampshire? Oh, gosh. You know, there were a number of abusive police officers during that time period, and Kelly gave them all a pass, okay? I don't know that much really has passed at all. I do know that the the atmosphere in Franconia is better. I, I, I've returned there a number of times since all of that. You know, I was up there last uh, year. Before that, it had been a couple of years. Because when I moved to... Uh, Seattle, I stopped coming as much, you know. I, I was only there a few times. But uh, for the first five years or so after it happened, six years, I was there a lot. And I can tell you that, well, Chris Fowler was a cop. He was in town. He was he came up in the Bruce McKay idiom, and he pissed a lot of people off for his attitude, that's for sure. It got better because it couldn't have got worse. So what do you know about the Maura Murray case? Boy, I do know that they threw a party for me after uh, after uh, I, I I sued the state. I sued the, the town and the uh, state for information of public records request, and that's what produced that that OC spraying of Sarah, okay, whose last name I won't get into, but it's out there. Mm-hmm. Um, that produced that and a couple other things that, that came out too. You know, uh, like Troy Watts is an attorney that had sent a complaint about Bruce McKay too, 
uh, and that came out during that litigation. And there's some other stuff that the AG's office didn't give me. It's part of their part of their homicide protocol. They didn't give me that. Then I was entitled to get some of that. I won that case, and guess what? Never happened. I never got my costs. Yeah, Judge Vaughn. I went back to him and I said, "Where are my costs?" Okay, and that's because they're not going to give you costs as a a civilian going after you know large power establishment like that, and two as a black man. I think they're both intertwined. Some of these things are inexorably intertwined. I've been a black man in this country 53 years in April, and I kind of know. You know, <laughs> you read between the lines. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Drive a truck through it. Right. Yeah. But I will say this. The beauty of Franconia is that, if anything, my race mattered in a sense that they wanted to know me. You know, I was treated... Just equally and just, I think the people of Franconia are absolutely beautiful. By and large, I, I felt welcome there. I never felt like there was any negative racial anything from those people out there. I love those people. That's great to know. <laughs> and for those, and not, love- for those not watching, it was a, it was a, a pounding of the heart and a, and a peace sign. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And that I, I, still, I still get the tingly. It's just, it's just really remembering how how beautiful how many beautiful exchanges i had with people up there i I miss that and you know i miss skiing up there i miss all that stuff okay so you were living in new hampshire um and what were you doing when you were living there oh god i have been working for american tower corporation and um (laughs) they're corrupt as hell anyway just google american tower plus backdated uh, backdating uh stock options anyway i was working for them for a while and then i uh basically uh Ended up suing them because they, I, I I was a whistleblower, and so I I got my employees a bunch of money for uh, overtime pay they should have got. And anyway, at that point I was learning how to handle mortgages, and I was a title insurance producer, and that led to the other stuff that we'll talk about when I'm with you another day about my <laughs> okay. mortgage website and all that. But as far as Maura Murray's people go, they threw me a party the day that I had was in court. And that's online, too. I gave you guys the links to that, that hearing where the public records request, uh, right to know. And uh, we were down at the Dutch Treat, and they made a bunch of balloons for me and stuff like that. And they just said, oh, thank God you're exposing some of the, the you know, you're bringing some, some light of disinfectant to this area, you know. And so, um, black man, bright light, woo! So, um, this was, like, really something that, um, it really made me feel special. And they felt special that somebody cared enough to care. And... Fred Murray, I kept, there, there were two factions in the, in the Murray camp, and I know there was some contention between them, but I think they were all unified with what I was doing. And uh, later on, I got some, some materials from them that I published online, all the gaps in the investigation. You know, I really wasn't as, as, as closely in tune with that investigation as I was with Lico's, but I do know that Lico Kenny did search for Maura Murray because Davey told me. He went on his four-wheeler at least once or twice with his buddies and, and, and you know, looked around trying to find, you know, anything they could find to try to help the, the, the state. So, And that was in the days, weeks after Mora went missing? That's right. Do you know yeah. where they searched? I That I don't know. But, you know, they had all that ridge up there. The Kennedys had all that. Oh, my God. There was so much. The, I went up there four-wheeling with those guys, man. And, you know, it's vast. It's beautiful. It's like God's country out there. So I don't know where they look specifically now. 
Just wondering if he uh, if they went across uh, Floyd's neck of the woods. Well, I was going to say that. I mean, I don't think we'd be too far off speculating that if Lico knew the area and had a four wheeler and knew about Greg Floyd, that that you know he probably probably would have been curious enough to go searching around that property. But or, that is that is just right. speculation, right? But if he had known about uh, Forcier sighting and where that happened, but I know that didn't come out until several months later, uh, so. Actually, he wouldn't have been snowmobiling at that point. I think it came out in like May or April. Well, no, they were four wheeling. Four wheeling. Oh, okay. Four four wheeling. Okay, my bad. Uh, so so they would have been four wheeling uh, when that came out. So yes, the, there is a. It is reasonable to assume he searched that far. Right. If you had to name one thing about the Moore Murray investigation that stands out to you as something that has been ignored, whether intentionally or. Um, you know, just overlooked. Is there one thing that's that that you would say this needs to be addressed? Bruce McKay's whereabouts. Why is that? Also, there are two things. One of them I already published about, and it was because this was in the early days of the cell tower, you know, uh, proliferation. Um, but I said, who called her? But there was an affidavit. I think Todd Landry was involved with that. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, you're uh, talking about the Londonary ping. The ping, yeah, right. Yeah. What was that about? Okay, I always wondered that, and and then I wondered what was the uh, what was where was Bruce McKay during all this? Because I and now we're now we're blending off into the level of conjecture. I'll be very clear about it. I know that people, more than one person, has told me there was a young lady by the name a uh, nickname was Leather, and I was told that she ended up leaving the area because she'd had a number of relationships of some kind with Bruce McKay, you know, and that there was some hush-hush going on, okay? And so I don't know the specifics of that, but I do not put it past him to to have been involved in some illicit manner with young women. Don't put it past him one minute, no. I think he was a bully, I think he was a narcissist, and a dangerous man. But he wasn't a cold-blooded killer, as far as we know. I think he was going to kill Lico that day. I, 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 I've been on the fence with this for a long time. And I was like, man, if he's not going to kill him, he's going to make him wish he was dead. Which is worse. Now, you said that uh, you know, you'd like to know his whereabouts for uh, the, the day Mora went missing. And this is because of the police logs? Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, I really couldn't. I couldn't quite follow all of it, but I under, my understanding is this: he was out there floating around somewhere, and much like he was missing in action on five eleven, okay, when Liko was killed and he was killed. Uh, by the way, I find it interesting, and you know, they say nothing or everything happens for a reason. When Liko's car came to rest on McKay, guess where it came to rest? On his badge. No, I, don't, I was just guessing. A little, a little lower than that. Starts with a B. <laughs> nice. Belt. Right on his yeah. belt. Yeah. And, yeah, he was sacked. So oh, when Lico accidentally ran him over, it was right up his crotch. That's what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. So you'd think that that's like some poetic justice? I do. Yeah. I do. Yeah. I think, I think McKay used sex in a bad way. I think uh, when he had that girl out there, when he had Sarah out there, and that, and that uh, when he OC sprayed her, 
and the way he subdued her, and, and, and Liko said that he had his balls in his face. Oh, yeah. I think he's a real bad man. And I, I got to say that, wow, how about that? That of all the places for that car to land, it landed on his ball sack. What the f- Really? So he was not accounted for on 511? Was it, was yeah. it a similar situation where the police log showed that he was um, dispatched and arrived? Like in the Moore Murray situation, uh, it says he was dispatched, but then he, um, uh, he, wasn't a, he, he, didn't, he wasn't, he was in route. He cleared the scene. And right? then he cleared the scene, but he never, you know, the Actually time arrived. for arrived. Yeah, it wasn't there. Um, is it the same situation here? Uh, this is a situation where uh, it was obviously before the scene. <laughs> we know his whereabouts after the scene, but uh, at some point that during that afternoon, he's MIA. And I'd have to go back into my blogs. Maybe we could could find it next time we talk. You know, but it's in my blogs that there's a, there's a gap. It's kind of like, what are you doing? Talking to Floyd, getting the scene set. You know, hmm. certainly does beg the question, doesn't it? It's very interesting. Yeah. They have uh, police-issued cell phones? Do they have police-issued cell phones, or is it personal cell phones? That... Oh, you know what? There were cell phones. I did call for the records of those, and I remember going through that, but I can't remember what I came up with, you know? Because it would but... be interesting to look at if there was any, like, to look at his cell phone records um, for both incidents. Well, like any good cop, though, he's going to have another cell phone. Like, like any dangerous person, he's not going to make that call from that phone. See, you, right. and that's why I'm not a criminal. Oh, now, <laughs> pull should, out of it, son. We should be. We should be. You should feel you're like rest assured. I'm not a criminal. I wouldn't even. Yeah, I, I would. Know. I would literally call for my own cell phone. Yeah, you wouldn't make it far, cause. Yeah. <laughs> Greg, Greg, meet me. Uh, meet me up by the uh, the old weathered barn. <laughs> now you emailed us about uh, a case. Uh, regarding Daryl Jones. Can you tell us a little bit about Daryl Jones before we wrap up? Daryl Jones, oh, yes. Black man, Brockton, 1985, wrongfully convicted of murder. Uh, an alleged drug dealer, Cuban drug dealer, was found, was, was not found. They saw it happen. He got shot, and he was allegedly shot by a man shorter than he. And they're all standing there, and it gets really deep because this drug dealer had told the cops down there, hey, I'm not going to be your patsy. I'm not going to take your plea to what you, whatever we got going on right now. And there was massive drug use going on in, in the 80s in Brockton. The police were, were taking shit out of their own storage. You know, the police chief went to prison for taking coke out of their storage. Then later on, wins a million-dollar lottery. Fancy that. So, uh, Sproul's is his name. But anyway, so Darrell did 32 years of hard time, and he had a bad lawyer going into it. He wouldn't even sit next to Darrell during the trial put him on a dock station behind him, and he said, you know, this man is not your peer. All this crazy stuff. And he was representing the police at the time, but tells Darrell halfway, or a third of the way into the trial, oh, by the way, oh, yeah, I represent these guys. Is that okay? And Darrell's like, well, I didn't do it, so sure, whatever, man, let's get on with this. You know? So eventually, the, at one point, the police doctored a videotape in the backyard, in the backyard, in the back uh, interrogation room of a known prostitute who had all kinds of cases against her. All right? Uh, they doctor this crash edit it at the point when she says, oh, the little guy had the gun. And then it cuts. And it's and then it comes, there's a show, Sergeant Bilko pops up. And, and, and uh, then it comes back in. But at the point, Darrell was six feet. The, the, the victim was six one. There's no little guy involved there. You have two men, you know, period. So that's just one of the elements. But um, he had no motive, didn't know the guy. 
And so anyway, while he was in prison, he became, you know, a bit of a philanthropist. He did civic work. He won awards for humanitarianism. He produced music. He helped mothers. He started uh, Voices from Behind the Walls. He started uh, What is Beautiful Never Dies, which includes collaboration with um, Malik Youssef, who is Kanye West's mentor. You know, he did a number of these things. And all the while, I'm in the background running footage of various hearings that are going on. I'm writing letters to the, to the, um, the, to the Department of Corrections for the violations that they're pinning against him, you know, for the last eight years. And he's, meanwhile, Darrell had a, had a cell phone in there. And th he went to max security, not because he was dangerous or violent, but because they finally caught him with the cell phone that he was using to help write music. And he was helping to, uh, he was writing ghostwriting for HuffPost from in there. All of this stuff. This guy's a genius, okay? Wow. And I run his blog. I run his blog, Daryl Jones Innocent Blog. And luckily, at some point, well after I got involved, at some point, you know, we had, we had the fortune of having the Innocence Project and other journalists with a lot more uh, uh, resources and money than I had to get in there. And I worked behind the scenes with them. I researched a few things, too. And, and you know, I was not a neutral journalist. And I don't have to be, by the way. There's no law that says a journalist has to be neutral. You know, who, who is? So, I mean, unless you're reporting something where you just happened upon a scene and you saw a car crash, who's in it? You know, nobody's uh, uh, impartial. I, I, I rely on my abilities and my years of, 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 of practice and observation about the legal system to reach the conclusion that the man got railroaded. And so basically he came out. Um, there was also racism on the jury. They found one of the jurors. This was like a rare an unprecedented event to have the Innocence Project getting someone uh, a new trial for someone not based on DNA but based on other types of evidence. This was unheralded, and they did it. So his lawyers were great. Um, yeah, Lisa Kavanaugh and Neil Austin were his lead lawyers, lead his lead trial counsel, and they they killed it. Very cool. It's awesome. And and you uh, run his blog, which you mentioned, which is uh, Daryl with uh, two R's and two L's, right? Daryl Jones yeah. Innocent dot blogspot dot com and your blog is christopher dash king chris king blog it'll come up chris king, yeah chris king blog um and it's really i don't know tim and i wrote down some questions to talk to you about i don't know if i actually we kind of hit some of them <laughs> kind of hit some of them it's like talking to a tornado and, and you know what the fucked up part of it is? My shit is cogent, and they know it is. All right? I'm not just some yahoo out here, man. Everything I say is backed up, and it's all a stream of consciousness, but tied to distinct, proven fact. 